The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 14. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can laugh, and thank you that we can can have joy. And thank you for, as Morgan already so wonderfully reminded us, that Jesus says it's better for him to go away. Because when he does, the helper will come. And that happened. And now all who trust in you are now filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we have your presence, not just among us, but within us. We get to worship you, celebrate you. Lord, we need you today. Ecclesiastes, whew, it's in your word. And so we need your help. By the power of your spirit, Lord, would you do what you've been doing for thousands of years? Make your word true in the lives and hearts of your people. We need you, Lord. We love you, Praise things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Welcome to what church is going to feel like for the next few months. We are beginning today a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, you should go ahead and grab that, get to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And in case you can't tell from the second verse of the book, this is not exactly the most happy, joy-filled 12 chapters of the scriptures. Ecclesiastes, just to warn you, if you're not familiar, on the surface is a glass half-empty sort of work. Zach Eswine, a pastor in Missouri, says in his fantastic book, Recovering Eden, who we'll quote often in this series, says this, Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. He looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we are all going to die. We try to explain. See, Ecclesiastes is a part of what's called the wisdom genre in the scriptures. So in case you're not aware, the Bible is not actually one book. It's a collection, a library of 66 different 
books. And those 66 books are a wide variety of different genres. You have narrative, you have history, you have letters and poetry, and the genre of wisdom. Now, the wisdom genre is given to us as a part of the Bible to help us know how God has designed life to work, how we are supposed to live into that design, and then generally speaking, how life will go if we live out God's design for our lives. The most famous wisdom book in the scriptures is Proverbs. Whether or not you have any sort of church background, you've probably heard somebody at some time in your life quote a proverb to you. They sound something like this, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or Proverbs 16, 3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. This is often what wisdom literature sounds like. If you work hard and you commit your work to the Lord, that's good. It's a part of God's design. Generally speaking, you will be able to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. That is good and true and it guides us in the best way to live on God's world. Ecclesiastes is also wisdom literature, but even though it's one book after Proverbs in the scriptures, it sounds like we've entered an entirely different world. So Proverbs says to us, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Ecclesiastes says, I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous. All of it is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. If Proverbs is the wisdom book of rules, you could easily think of Ecclesiastes as the wisdom book of exceptions. Proverbs is the book that tells us, I before E except after C. And just when we think we've got a grip on life, Ecclesiastes chimes in, or when sounded like A, as in neighbor and way. You see, in the book of Proverbs, a good man plus God's love plus wisdom equals a good life. But in Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love plus wisdom equals still dies like a fool. And for that very reason, this gift, this book of exceptions is a gift to us. And here's what I mean. Ecclesiastes makes us do something we spend our entire lives trying to avoid as modern Americans, to stare honestly and unapologetically at the harsh reality of life, that it's boring, that it's monotonous, that it's tedious, that it's way more painful than we ever desire. Ecclesiastes makes us finally admit to ourselves, to each other, and to the Lord that we're all running on a proverbial treadmill going nowhere. And if that's not enough, after making us face said pain and boredom of life, it does not offer us any simple or trite or pithy principles, right? This book is going to give you no four steps to joy, or five steps to a happy life, or whatever else we might want offered to us in the pain and tedium of life. Ecclesiastes is a gift of a book because it does not come alongside of us, put its arm around our shoulder and say, cheer up, life is good. In fact, instead it says, I'm really sorry, friend, life is just as hard as you think, and guess what, one day you're going to die. Philip Ryken says in his commentary on the book, he says, more than anything else in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world, the drudgery of work, the emptiness of foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. Think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible we know was written on a Monday morning, probably by a philosophy major. <laughs> no offense to any philosophy majors in the room. Ecclesiastes makes us face the brutality of life. And then just when we think it's done, it pushes us in even further. It starts with meaningless. It circles back to meaningless. It ends with meaningless. And then just at the last second, when we think it's finally done, it swoops in and says, yes, life is meaningless, but here's how to get through it with God. So this, friends, church, is a book for us. 
It's a book for those of us who feel like, I did a bunch of the right things I was supposed to do, and it all still sort of went to crap for me. It's a book for those of us who feel like, no matter how hard I try, life is like running through a forest where you keep tripping on roots that I can't see. It's a book for those of us who would lie to ourselves and pretend we can escape the melancholy pain of life if we just move somewhere new, get something new, or become someone new. But it's also a book for those of us who long for joy, who need to be discipled by our Savior into a life of laughter and smiling and celebration. Ecclesiastes moves into the mess of life with us, seeking to discover where is God and how do we live the good life with him. And so I'm excited for the next eight weeks. I think it's going to be a really fun book. We've got to learn to laugh at ourselves a little bit, so feel free to to lean into that. But let's start with chapter one. We're just going to dive right into chapter one, because chapter one, via a poem, is the preacher's kind of summation of the rest of the book. So it's going to give us what the other 11 chapters are about in kind of poem form. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Ecclesiastes 1, if you need a Bible, there should be some in the rows. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So just to orient you a little bit, the title of this book in English, Ecclesiastes, is a translation of a Greek word which means preacher. And it's called that because in the book, the main character who we're introduced to right here in 1-1 is called the preacher. Now, it's not 100% confirmed, but it's most likely talking about Solomon. Scholars are a little bit debated on it. It's most likely Solomon. Uh, He's the son of David. He was king in Jerusalem. He was an extremely wealthy and powerful man. He built the first Jewish temple. The Bible calls him, at one point, the wisest man to ever live. And so it would make a lot of sense if it was Solomon. We'll probably most of the time just refer to him as the preacher. But here's what's interesting. Although the preacher is the main character and even the main voice, he's not actually the author of the book. The author of Ecclesiastes is actually a third party reflecting on the words of the preacher and using them as an instructing tool for his son. So look near the end of the book. It'll be on the screen. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 and 10. The author writes, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So the book starts in 1-1 in third person, and it ends in 12-9 through the rest of the book in third person. And then all throughout the rest of the book is first person, the words of the preacher. And that's not just like fun facts. It matters because the words of the preacher alone appear quite cynical and jaded. The basic theology of the preacher, as we're about to see, is that life is hard, and then you die. And the author comes along, and he's trying to use this sermon of the preacher to say, he's right, but only partially. Let me tell you the rest of the story. But before we get to the rest of the story, let's first look at the opening words of the preacher. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, there are two kind of really central themes for the entire book here in these two verses. The first is the idea or theme of vanity. Vanity is going to come up 38 times in the next 12 chapters. It's the Hebrew word habel. 
And we started this morning by reading the NIV translation, which is meaningless. And that's pretty good, but not the full summation of this phrase. It literally translates Habel as vapor or mist. The best word picture or picture I can give you is that of smoke. It's kind of here today and then gone tomorrow. You can't really get your hands around it. It's fleeting. It's ungrabbable. It's what the psalmist says when he says our days are like a mist like a shadow. It's here, and then it's gone. It's vapor. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. And specifically, the preacher says, everything is vanity under the sun. That's the second big theme of the book. It shows up 30 times. Under the sun. It's the preacher's way of describing life here in the world. To view life under the sun is to take an earthly point of view and leave God out of the picture. It's meant more as a statement of time, not so much of place. So he doesn't literally mean under the sun as much as he means this side of eternity, life here and now on the earth as humans. And so here in the opening verses of the poem, the opening verses of the book, we get the preacher's main thesis. And this is important for you to grasp as you understand and we work through the rest of the book. Here's his main thesis. Life under the sun, life here and now without God is all vanity. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. The preacher starts the sermon this way. He's going to end the sermon this way in Ecclesiastes 12. His final words are vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's his thesis. Life under the sun, here and now, without God, is like that. It's a vapor. It's fleeting. This is the opening of his sermon, right? (laughs) No funny anecdote, no cool story, no illustration to get your attention. He just goes right in. Everything is vanity. But now, in the rest of the poem, he's going to spend some time backing up that point. So in case you're not convinced, here's his argument for why. So let's keep reading the poem together. He's going to show us three main reasons why all is vanity. And just to warn you, they're they're tough. (laughs) All right, verse 5. We'll skip verse 4. We'll come back to it. Verse 5. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Three reasons why all is vanity, according to the preacher. Number one, all is vanity because life is a mundane cycle. All is vanity because life is a mundane cycle. This morning, for those of us who were setting up, know this, the sun rose at 6.50 a.m. And tonight it's predicted to set at 7.56 p.m. Tomorrow morning, guess what's going to happen again? The sun is going to rise. And then guess what? It'll set again. And right now we're in spring, and soon is coming summer. Then after summer will be fall, and after fall will be winter, and after winter, guess what comes again? Spring. Revolutionary stuff, I know. This is what the preacher's doing. He's pointing to nature, going, do you see how much of a loop this whole thing called the earth is on? Do you see the vanity? Do you feel how it's the same old thing after the same old thing after the same old thing after the same old thing? I mean, do you not watch the video of Jackson going, there's just something in me that resonates with that. There's just something in me that feels that and is now suddenly really afraid of the Monday scaries, right? Because I'm going to have to wake up and do it all again because here's what life is. Life is a mundane cycle. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up you're going to get your, your coffee drink of choice, and you're going to drive or log into work, and you're going to go to the same meeting. You're going to have the same small talk with your coworkers. You're going to eat lunch at one of the same five places. You're going to go to the same gym for the same workout, 
have the same dinner with the same family or roommates, head to the same community group with the same people to talk about the same sin and same struggle, go home and watch the same rerun, spend time scrolling the same Instagram feed, and then go to bed just to wake up, rinse, and repeat. That's the mundane cycle of life. You're going to do that for 20, 30, 40 more years until you retire, and then you'll be free, right? Wrong. Because what are you going to do then? Wake up, get your coffee drink of choice, go play the same golf course, shoot the same score because you never get better at golf, hypothetically. (laughs) Go to the same lunch place, and so on and so on and so forth, and then you die. Like, Do you see the preacher's point? That is life. It's just around and around and around and around. The same old, the same old. There's nothing new under the sun. And it's all a bell. It's all a vapor. It's all a breath. It's all meaningless. Let's keep going. Verse 8. We're doing all right? Sweet. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with hearing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Mm-mm. It has already been in the ages before us. Second reason why he argues that all is vanity is because life is elusive. Life is elusive, a bell, a vapor, or a mist. Have you ever tried to grab smoke? If you have, you know that the harder you try to grab it, the quicker it goes away. You try to bottle the wind, the quicker it flees. It's a real physical thing, and yet the moment you get near it, it runs away. And that's what the preacher says life is like. It's elusive. It's, it's always just out of reach. The eye is never quite satisfied with seeing, and the ear never quite satisfied with hearing. Let me prove this to you. Have you ever had that moment where life just feels like perfection. It's like 65, 70 degrees, the sun is shining, it's a Saturday afternoon, you're with good friends, having good food and good drink, the Sunday scaries aren't here yet, and you have that, I mean, you, you know it, right? You have that moment in your soul where you're just like, mmm, yes, right? No, just me? Where you just feel like, I just want to bottle this up. Like, this, this is the stuff, right? You ever had that moment where you just kind of sit back, and it's almost like you're watching yourself live, and you're like, this is it. Like, this is incredible. And then what happens? That work stress pops into your mind. That text message notification from that friend in crisis. That person makes that joke at your expense offhandedly that you wish they wouldn't have made in front of the group. The perfect moment is gone. That's the elusive nature of life. You can't get your mind around it. I mean, do you ever sense that, I just want to get a handle on life, and it always feels like that getting a handle on life is actually just right around the corner, right? You're like, I just need to get a hold of my schedule, and then next week is busier than the week before. I just need to get on top of the laundry, and then there's always another pair of dirty socks. I just need to get control of my finances, and then that emergency comes up that you didn't save for. That's the elusive nature of life. I mean, just think about how uncontrollable and ungrabbable life truly is, right? You can pour pour your whole life into something, a business, a startup. You can pour your whole life into a relationship, whatever it may be, and you're one unexpected, unplanned, uncontrollable tragedy away from it all going to crap. The last few years have reminded us of this, and one of the things we constantly heard is, as we would live into the reality of a pandemic and all these different things, is we would say things like, man, life is really out of control. Life is really uncontrollable. I don't know what's actually going to come tomorrow. That wasn't new. We were just more aware of it. It's never been grabbable. It's never been controllable. You could could do everything right in your job, 
and the market could go under and you could get laid off. You could do everything right as a parent and your kid could still grow up to reject Jesus. Life is ungrabbable. It's elusive. It's fleeting. And he gives us one more. Look back at verse four. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Or verse 11, yet there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The third reason the preacher gives is that all is vanity because everyone dies and is forgotten. Generation goes, a new generation is born. The preacher says the earth just keeps on spinning. So life is mundane, right? It's cyclical, it's elusive, you can never fully get your hands around it. And then in a cruel, sick joke, in case you ever get that moment where you feel like, I've got it, life is good, it's under control, it's working in my favor, the preacher says, like a high tide to a well-built sandcastle, it's all going to go to mush, and you're going to die, and you're going to be forgotten. And I feel this one deeply in my bones right now. I mean, just... Deeply. So over the past nine months, um, I've lost two grandparents. Over the past two years, Lindsay and I combined have lost three, and then one got diagnosed with cancer. And so we're kind of been having that conversation a lot that um, it's the kind of changing of the generations for us as a family, which is a really hard thing to wrestle through and think about. But I remember in particular about nine months ago going up to Minnesota where my extended family's from for my grandmother's funeral. And I went up there, and we did the funeral, and then we all went to my uncle's house and just to kind of hang out. And I'm there laughing, catching up with my uncle and aunt and some cousins. And all my cousins' kids that I've never met before are all, like, running around and smiling. And there's, like, babies and toddlers, and it's all really fun. Then I get back in the rental car to drive back uh, a few hours to Minneapolis, and I leave my uncle's house, and I go through um, Main Street of this kind of little southern Minnesota town. It's everything you imagine little town Minnesota to be. And... Um, I'm driving by myself, and I'm, I'm passing the, the grocery store and the little cafe and the little two-lane bowling alley and my grandma's house and the playground next to her house and the hill we used to go sledding on, and all of these memories are just flooding into my mind. You ever had that experience? Right, where you're just, because you're in a space, it's like these things you forgot even existed or happened, you're like now remembering all of it. And this thought dawned on me as I'm leaving town, I might never be back here again. Like, this, this, is, this is kind of it. And it's not that I don't love my uncles and aunts and cousins, but the, but the matriarch of the family, the one who held the family together, is now gone. So I'm thinking about all of these memories. And listen, I, I love my grandma. Like, I, I love her. Um, I remember one memory in particular back in 2013. I got to go visit her on a work trip. And... Um, we got to just spend the day just me and her, which is very rare uh, for just the way that our extended family worked. But we got to go hang out, and she took me to this little cafe that uh, she goes to every, uh, went to every Tuesday with her friends, and she was like showing me off to all her old lady friends. It was really fun. She was like, this is my grandson. Um, that's how she talked. That was not a make fun of. Um, and then we went back to her house, and we watched soap operas until she fell asleep. It was a really beautiful everything you'd want in that morning with your grandma. And I love my grandma to death. And I'm reading Ecclesiastes 1, and the first thing that pops into my mind in this reality that he says, you will die and be forgotten, is that when it comes to my grandma, I have memories. And my kids will have stories. And my grandkids will probably know her name. And my great-grandkids will probably never know she existed. And one day, she is going to be one name among thousands on the FinerAncestry.com report. And that's her future. 
we will die and we will be forgotten. That is life, according to the preacher. That all is vanity because it's a cycle, it's elusive, you can never get your hands around it, and it's like this. It's a breath. It's a breath. And in a room like this that skews young, I know that that's a really hard concept to believe is true, often. But it's true. It's what the preacher tells us. That's his whole point, right? If life is like this, if it's elusive, it's it's a cycle, if you're going to die and be forgotten, then what's the whole point? And he answers for us, nothing. Nothing, right? It's all meaningless. What does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? He tells us, not a thing. It's all pointless. All right. Take a breath. How do we get from that to the gospel? Right? Like, how do we get from everything is meaningless, nothing matters, everything under the sun is a vapor and a mist, to I got to have some joy because Monday's coming? Like, how do I live into tomorrow, right? Like, what do I do with this reality? How do I get from the bad news of everything being vanity to the good news of Jesus still on the throne, right? Like, how do I do this? Well, I think it's important first to acknowledge what a shallow and superficial version of Christianity would do. What a shallow, superficial, just have some joy version of Christianity would do is they would take all of this and they would slap a, quote, but Jesus onto the end. This is how it would read. Verse 14, summation of his argument. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. But Jesus? You gotta have a question mark, right? As if knowing Jesus and trusting in Jesus makes this all go away erases this book of the Bible and makes it unimportant for us to think about. But church, listen, that is not how we get to the gospel from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Because remember, this text is telling us what is true about life under the sun. And even when you trust in Jesus, do you not still live under the sun? David Gibson, I love him for this. He says, surely the Christian way of looking at life is different, right? If I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus, doesn't that change everything? It is true that knowing Christ does provide a whole new angle, the true angle on what it means to be alive. But the preacher is not commenting on what life is like without Christ. He's saying this is just what the world is like. It's reality. It's the same for everyone, Christian or non-Christian. This is how things are. Being a Christian doesn't stop this being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending that it isn't true. Even for the person who trusts in Jesus and follows Jesus and hopes in Jesus, life under the sun is still fleeting and mundane and elusive and futile. And I don't think I need to tell you this, right? Even Christian businesses fail. Even Christian marriages falter. Even Christian friendships fracture. Even Christian lives as followers of Jesus are marked by cyclical mundanity and elusive futility. But here's the reality. The beauty of the gospel is not that we magically escape the vanity of life under the sun. The beauty of the gospel is that God has entered into that vanity with us. That's the good news of Ecclesiastes, that we're not left to our own devices, that we're not isolated or alone, left to figure out the mundanity of life on our own, that the eternal God enters under the sun, right? He who was outside the sun takes on flesh and comes into life under the sun for us. That is the good news of God being Emmanuel, God with us. Then you want to talk about vanity, God dies, What? God dies. I mean, Jesus dies on a a Roman cross. Think about it. What is seemingly more vain 
and futile and meaningless than one of the most beautifully moral people to ever live dying a murderer's death of execution. I mean, you want to talk about seemingly meaningless. Look at the cross, right? That Jesus would die? That's vanity. Unless God is up to something. Unless God is doing something. Unless what we celebrated seven days ago is true. That Jesus didn't stay dead, but he got up out of the grave, and the cross was not the end of the story. And so Jesus rose, and in his rising, defeats the vanity, futility, and reign of death. That is the good news of the gospel, that life under the sun may actually be vanity, but there's another life to come outside the sun. That life here and now on the earth is futile and cyclical and mundane and elusive and going to end, but for all who trust in Jesus, there's another life to come. That's the promise of the resurrection. That's the hope in which we live. And so just listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter about the resurrection, the historical accuracy of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection, the victory of Christ in the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection. But look at how he ends the chapter, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is what? not vanity. If Jesus rose again, meaning all who trust in him will to rise with him one day, then the life under the sun is vanity. But guess what? No longer. It's not vanity anymore. Under the sun, the preacher says, our labor is in vain. It's meaningless. It's vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. But when there's life after the sun, when there's life forever with God, our labor is no longer in vain. That's the resurrection hope underneath the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the good news of the gospel. So, in light of that, I know I'm going long, I make no apologies. This is a series called The Good Life, okay? So that's, yes, resurrection hope. What does that then mean for how I live? Because wisdom literature, the whole reason why it's in the Bible is to teach us how to live. How do I actually live in God's design of the world? Because this is the the word of God, right? This is the inerrant, true, authoritative, inspired word of God. So what do I do in light of it? Let me just give us real briefly-ish three invitations as we close. Three invitations for what we should do in light of this book. This is going to help navigate. If you're willing to step into these, it's going to help you navigate not just today, but the rest of the book. So you've got to get these. Three invitations from the book of Ecclesiastes from chapter one. Number one, the first invitation is to sacred honesty. Sacred honesty. Life under the sun is vanity. It's elusive, it's cyclical, it's mundane, and we all die. We just said that's true whether you're a Christian or not. But because the resurrection is also true, we are the first to stop pretending. Right? That's what David Gibson wrote. Being a Christian doesn't stop this being true. Rather, it makes us the first to stop pretending that it isn't. Harper, my three-year-old, loves playing pretend right now loves playing pretend. She's got so many pretend friends. There's uh, pretend alligator and pretend dinosaur and pretend monster who they all have sharp teeth, but they're friendly. So don't get nervous. And there's pretend Harper, which is really weird. Um, (laughs) And then uh, there's also her pretend father, which consequently enough always disagrees with what her actual real father has to say. And that's difficult. And we're working on it. 
and it's very cute. Uh, when three-year-olds play pretend, it's very cute. It's actually a good thing. Like, so, you know, science would tell you it develops their prefrontal cortex, all this stuff I have no business talking about. But I know it's good. Like, I know it's good for three-year-olds to play pretend. It's cute, and it's fun, and she's learning to have imagination, which is so needed for life. And she's learning how to play by herself, and she's learning how to interact, and all of these kinds of things. And it's beautiful. When you're a toddler, playing pretend is awesome. When you're an adult, playing pretend is super weird. Right? <laughs> and yet, and yet, modern American life is built on pretending. Modern American life is built namely on pretending that Ecclesiastes 1 is not true. We try to avoid the reality of the meaningless by playing one giant game of agreed upon pretend. Just consider this with me, right? Let's pretend that if I get the promotion, Let's pretend that if my kids end up being good, civilized humans, let's pretend that if I leave some sort of lasting legacy, then I will feel significant. Let's pretend that if I change jobs, or if I get a promotion, or if I go work for that cooler company, then work won't be so boring or monotonous or tedious. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house or a new neighborhood or a new city, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end that relationship and start a new one, we'll have romantic bliss forever. Let's pretend that if we were married or we weren't married, then we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had just a little bit more money, then we would be satisfied and never stressed again. Let's pretend that if we could just get through this week's pile of washing dishes and dirty diapers and shopping lists and busy evenings, then, then for sure next week will be more restful. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to become. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. That's the agreed upon American game of pretend. Let's just pretend. Let's just pretend it's one more thing, a little bit more, a little bit new, a little bit exciting. Then we will find the good life. And Ecclesiastes says, mm -mm, wake up. Life is vain. If you insist on playing pretend, the next seven weeks will be of no help to you. If you insist on, no, I'm going to stick my head in the sand, and it's one more promotion, it's one more relationship, it's a little bit more money, it's one more vacation, that's where the good life is found. Then I'm telling you, this book will be no help. But if you're willing to wake up and see, oh yeah, life under the sun without God is vanity, then this book will be incredibly helpful for you. Because it will lead to the second invitation. The second invitation of Ecclesiastes, after we learn to be sacredly honest, is to live into the sacred mundanity. To live into the sacred mundanity. Second invitation of Ecclesiastes is to embrace what you call a sacred mundanity, a sacred monotony, that life under the sun is tedious, it's often boring, it's very mundane and dry. And everything within us wants to rebel against that reality, does it not? C.S. Lewis, in his work, The Screwtape Letters, writes of a, a fictional interaction between two demons, one who is training another how to tempt and attack humanity. Uh, and in the book, the older demon says to his protege, I think it's really helpful, he says, the horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart, an endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. Here's one demon saying to another in this fictional account, one of the best things that we've gotten humans to believe is that there's a horror in the same old thing. And Solomon would say, mm -mm, the same old thing is called life. That's life, right? And our, our culture, our hearts hate it. We think it's a horror, right? I need excitement. I need change. I need something new. I need something that's going to make me happy. I'm just, 
bored and tired. One of the constant refrains we'll see in this book is to give up the grasping, to stop trying to get out of life what you were never meant to get out of life, to stop thinking that the end of the vanity, that a completely happy, free, content life is just right around the corner if you changed something, worked a little harder, lived somewhere better, etc., etc., and instead to embrace what God's invitation has always been for his people, right? Think all the way back to Genesis 1. What is God's perfect design before sin enters the world? It's a place, a people, work, and his presence, And that's going to be the invitation continually from the preacher, time and time and time again in Ecclesiastes. Do you know the invitation of God? The sacred mundanity of a people, a place, a work, and God's presence. That's his invitation. If you would have good work to give yourself to, a people to be with, a place to belong, and God's presence in and among all of it, that is the good life. That's what the Bible says. 1 Thessalonians 4. What does Paul challenge the Thessalonian church to, right? Make it your goal to live a quiet life and work with your hands. Why? So that people would see you and see Jesus. Not run after all this adventure, not go after all this excitement, not go after what's constantly new. Live a quiet life and work with your hands. That's the stuff of the Christian life with God. That's the invitation. A people, a place, work to do, all of it in the presence of God. And if you learn to live with that, that will lead to the third. And here's where we'll close. Sacred joy. The third invitation of Ecclesiastes is sacred joy. It's a book of joy. It really is. It's a book of joy. As we learn to be honest about the world and the vanity of life under the sun, and we learn that resurrection hope fills our entire life, and we give ourselves to the sacred mundanity of a people, a work, a place, in the presence of God, that is where we find sacred joy. Because here's the What's awesome, God is in the monotony. God is in the mundane. And notice this contrast, right? So the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, the sun rising and setting over and over again is vanity. But Psalm 113 tells us that each rising of the sun brings new mercies of God, right? The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, it's vanity that the wind just keeps going around and around. But Psalm 107 says, God commands the wind and tells it where to blow. The preacher says, there's nothing new under the sun and it's vanity. But Isaiah 43 tells us God is doing a new thing. That we serve the God of a new, God of new creation, God of new people, God of a new covenant, God of a people of new. And so the preacher would point to the mundane cycle of life and say, it's all pointless and it's all meaningless. And the scriptures would invite us to point back and say, sort of, but God is here. This is G.K. Chesterton's last quote, I promise, and then we'll close. This is book Orthodoxy. It's, oh, it's so good. Okay, track with me. It's long. Man, you got to get this. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Amen, parents? (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that all daisies are alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that our God has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. What? We look at a child and we say, how annoying that you would want the same thing over and over and over again. But what about our God? May he say to the sun every morning, do it again. And to the moon every evening, do it again. And it's not just a factory that churns out the daisies. Maybe he's never grown tired of making daisies. So he's like, daisy, 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 daisy. That's the exalting monotony of our God. 
And so we rebel with our entire self against monotony. And God says, I'm in the monotony. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. That's what we're journeying into over the next few weeks, that under the sun, all is vanity. But our God has come from outside the sun to teach us to live with resurrection hope in the sacred mundanity of life under the sun. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we love you. God, thank you that we have sinned and grown old, but you are exuberant, are you exuberant and lovely, and that every morning you're not afraid to say to the sun, do it again. And that though our souls rebel against the monotony, you exult in it. And you invite us into it with you. And so our hearts search for what is new, and our hearts search for what might bring excitement and life and a new job and a new relationship and a new home and a new city and new and new and new and new. And you invite us back once again to be honest. Life under the sun is vanity. And as long as we need it for the good life, we will never be satisfied. You are here in the mundane. You're here in the same Tuesday morning. You're here in the same Thursday afternoon. You are here with us in the monotonous. And so, Lord, I pray that you would train our souls over the next eight weeks. You would train us to listen and to hear from you, to rest in you, to be invited back to honesty and reality, that you are where the good life is found. And that life can be as vain as it wants to be because you've promised life after the sun. And so, Lord, we step into all the mundanity, we step into all of the vanity, we step into all of the fleetingness, looking for you, looking for joy, embracing the people, work, place, and presence you've given us, trusting that you're here. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.